0: That's where a human stops another human by thinking about what could I have put in place before that? What else should I be looking for? What else can I correlate this to? And a single product can't do that. A single suite of products can't do that. Somebody has to look at all of the things. And the problem for small to medium businesses is they don't have staff for that. And programs like an MDR service give And it doesn't matter from what vendor, but they give a smaller customer the ability and a set of eyes and a set of knowledge and a set of experience that they can then tap
1: in order to help protect them. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about threat hunting, and why that matters for managed detection and response. Okay, so those words might already mean little to some of our audience, so some explaining. Broadly, we're talking about cybersecurity today, no surprise, and what goes into cybersecurity, which isn't always obvious. Because even for people who read about cybersecurity, for people who report on cybersecurity issues, for people who interview experts on cybersecurity, for a lot of us, cybersecurity is a bit obscure. So okay, can I tell you about the most recent ransomware attack in the news, and what company was hit, and what group was likely responsible for it, and the dollar amount demanded? Yes, sure, okay. but. Can I tell you about how, specifically, the attackers gained initial access? Likely no. Or can I describe what the attackers did first after gaining entry, and why an attacker would take those steps? No. What about the tools the attackers deployed and how they, if they did, averted any cybersecurity software already running? That's a definite no. What I'm getting at here is that in cybersecurity, talking about malware is not the same thing as talking about attacks. There is a level of expertise, of experience, that is certainly beyond me. And and for the most part, that doesn't matter, right? I am just a person, an individual. But there are hurdles for small and medium-sized businesses that are responsible for understanding their own cybersecurity and the cybersecurity of their employees. For so many organizations today, A sort of mandatory step in cybersecurity is rolling out something called Endpoint Detection and Response, or EDR. It's the de facto cybersecurity tool that nearly every vendor makes that lets security teams watch over their many endpoints and respond if the software detects a problem. As we've learned many times on this show, through no fault of their own, tons of smaller businesses are so overwhelmed with day-to-day IT issues that monitoring cybersecurity can be difficult. The expertise can be lacking at a small company. The knowledge of how to configure an EDR tool to flag the right types of warnings, which by the way is a thing, there are very few so-called set it and forget it EDR tools out there that knowledge can be missing. And the time to adequately monitor an EDR tool can be in short supply. Which is where managed detection and response, MDR, comes in. It's essentially a way for companies to rely on a team of experienced analysts to find and protect against cyber attacks. The power that the brains behind MDR are its threat hunters. People who have prevented ransomware from being triggered, who have investigated attackers' moves across a network, who have pulled the brakes on a botnet infection. Today, we're going to learn about attacks with analysts from Malwarebytes's very own MDR team. To help us understand what threat hunting is all about, we're speaking with Matt Sherman, Senior Manager of MDR Delivery Services, and Anne-Marie Naiga, MDR Lead Analyst. Matt, Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Oh, Thank you. Wonderful to be here.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Absolutely, we're excited to have you. And let's just jump right into it. Like I said at the start there, right? I'm trying to separate a concept for our audience here, which is that for a lot of folks, myself included, malware and attacks are different things. Uh, I hear malware and I think a name, a type, and a detection. But again, your work involves stopping an attack. And so my question to start is, rather broad, but it is simple, which is what does it mean to stop an attack and how do you do it? An attack
0: is different from malware in the fact that usually the malware is just about the last thing that you see if an attack is being performed. So when I say that An endpoint detection product, any endpoint detection product, caught a piece of malware on a particular system. Well, that's just the final point in all of it. And the disposition of the system is related directly to what that malware was and how that endpoint detection product dealt with it. The deeper question is, how did it get there and what else do I need to be worried about? So the attack is what got that piece of malware delivered there? What were the user's behaviors at the time? What is the disposition of the actual endpoints after the piece of malware or even before the piece of malware? And do I need to be looking for any sort of other type of malware or indicators of compromise on that particular endpoint where it was detected or elsewhere inside my network? So we look at the attack as an overall process, cradle to grave, of the delivery and execution and hopefully detection and prevention of any malicious activity from that particular piece of malware. So it is very much squinting your eyes, looking not just at the concrete thing that you saw, but also at the behaviors and tactics that an attacker might have used in order to gain purchase on that endpoint and inside that environment.
1: When you... Talk about something like, like you said, the the behaviors, the tactics. What are those kinds of things? You know, what is something that sticks out to both of you as red flags?
0: To me, a red flag would be anything that is... Unwarranted spam, for example. Spam comes in because everybody gets spam, but somebody gets sp- spam that looks intriguing or what that, and then they click on a link inside there. And we've all had a family member do that. And we've all had somebody then immediately post on Facebook, uh, don't answer any friend requests from me or any sort of social media like that. You know, I've been hacked. Well, how did you get hacked in the first place? The tactic is sending you a piece of spam in order to get you to click on something with spam as the example and it is not the only type of threat but that leads you into clicking on something that looks like it might be realistic coming from someone so the tactic is that they develop a piece of mail that looks like it's coming from somebody you might know or somebody you would like to get something from a family member saying oh hey i just have new photos they're up in here or a piece of mail coming from an online vendor saying, oh, your account needs to be updated. Please click here in order to go in and update your information. Well, you click in there, provide the credentials, and then suddenly you're inside. That attack looks similar in vein of getting you to do something that you wouldn't normally to do by going to website or following a link or providing a credential into something. And so those attacks wind up harvesting a little bit of information in order to get the attacker a little more knowledge and a little more of a foothold inside either your endpoint or inside your online identity or inside your mailbox to allow them to pivot from there and then spread out a little further. And so, for example, once they get inside your mailbox, if you've had to log into something and provided the username and password by following that link, Statistically, it's highly probable that you would have used that username and password for other things. Well, now they have that information. Then they have your email address, so now they have an email address and a password, and they can try those all over the place. Statistically, that means it's going to be successful. And they use these tactics to go from place to place and try more and more things. If you have that one family member that consistently says they got hacked on social media, it's because statistically they have the same email address and the same password. And so we see people using those threats and those tactics in order to gain a further purchase inside their environment, whether it's their own home computer or possibly on their work computer. And so we uh, follow those.
2: Just to add to what Matt said, yeah, it's, it's really persistence of the hackers. Once they find one thing, they're just going to try over and over and over and over again to make sure at least they find something or they see something. And you can't really blame the user because we're really taught to trust computers and You know, just put in our information and then you get a reward, which is like almost instant. It really leads down to like social engineering and taking advantage of people's trust and what they do with computers, how they access computers, what they're expecting to get. You know, another one is like adware. A lot of things come through adware because you might see it and just be like, oh, it's an ad and I'm not going to click it, but your mouse just ends up there or it's just something that's really shiny. So there's multiple techniques that really do end up taking advantage of trust.
1: Something that, Matt, you were saying at the start there, right, is that malware is actually sort of the final stage of an attack. And uh, all of this talk about looking at tactics, looking at behaviors, it obviously kind of begs the question here of like, the two of you, have you seen behaviors in place before and recognized that that's an attack in progress and then stopped it before the malware was delivered. And the bigger question I'm asking there is like, if you're able to do that, how do you do that? I I don't even understand, you know, the, the process of, okay, I see all these behaviors happening. What role do you have then?
0: That's interesting. And it kind of dovetails into something that I had to do for my daughter. She, uh, had an assignment a couple of years ago and was talking about, you know, what are your parents' jobs? What do they do? And what can you say about that? And she asked me what I did. And I got to look her straight in the face and said, Oh, I read log files for other people and sometimes to them. And that is a very, very light overview of (laughs) what any of our analysts do, anybody, and, and any analyst, any security analyst, anywhere on the planet, basically, we read the telemetry from any of the products that come through. I spent an awful lot of time before coming to here where I'm at now, malware bytes doing instant response on enterprise scale. So it's very much read all the log files about all the things that could have happened that ever involved this one user, or this one endpoint, or this one location, or this one company and make a determination from the evidence that was provided from there. But when I say that I see an attack in progress, that is as simple as I went through and looked at the logs for an EDR product as it sits today and noticed that several hundred times a minute, it was blocking a remote desktop connection coming in from the outside world external to this computer network that this one singular endpoint happened to be on. And the EDR product was, okay, that was a failed remote login. That was a failed remote login. I'm logging all of these things. Every single time somebody fails at this, I log it. And I I know that that's an attack coming because real people trying to do their job don't do that hundreds of times a minute. That's a script. And so you get to say like, oh, this is happening. You know, what is the rate and rise? I mean, much like a smoke detector, like there's always going to be particles in the air, but how many differences in the amount of particles are there over X period of time? You know, if I get five more particles of smoke in the air over the course of five minutes, that means, oh, maybe you burnt some toast. But if I get a thousand more particles over the course of that same five minutes, that's a good time for a smoke alarm to go off. Same thing from... MDR solution or anything else. An analyst would look at that and go, oh, well, no human being tries to log in a thousand times a minute. Full stop. That's something else. That's a script. That looks like something that we should be concerned about. And then you start drilling into the whole thing of like, well, where was it coming from? Is it a specific remote location? Is it hundreds of remote locations all trying this? And then what can we do to stop that? In the case of this, this was one remote domain, but several IP addresses inside there, which once again leads to uh, th- that's another determination of this could possibly be a script acting, trying to go through and just you know have a bunch of bots from this one domain trying to get into this one thing because they know it exists. Um, if you wind up looking a little bit further and you had deeper telemetry, you'd probably see that that one domain was trying to do this at thousands of places. And that was indeed the case of what we were seeing here. And we were able to take that information, throw it up inside there, get that domain and specifically those IP addresses that were being used to try to do this in a nation where this particular customer had no want to be and no need to connect from added to a suspicious domain. And so we continue to track that to help other people as well. And, and whether or not it's, you know, somebody trying to remote desktop in or somebody failing logins local at the machine every time you forget your password or fat finger it that gets logged somewhere and that is another source of telemetry of like oh this failed to log in this could happen internal inside an organization or from external All of those are symptomatic and score. I mean, if you're using an artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning or any sort of playbook in order to do those things, those have scorings. If you're using a human analyst, that just looks weird and it looks weird because it is weird. And so we take all of that. And so we dig into those types of threats.
1: The description of, you know, looking over log files is probably like the most clinical description I've heard of of this job. Uh, and it like squinting it at log files. Up, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it conjures up this image in my mind. Like if someone asks, like, David, what do you do? You know, because I also write for, you know, Mauerbytes Labs. And I would say, like, I look at the alphabet and then I just like put it together <laughs> in different ways. <laughs> that's that's what my job is. Anne Marie, I do you also just look at logs?
2: So yes and no. Um, <laughs> we're lucky we're lucky that we have, you know, the EDR tool that does a lot of normalization for us. And then we also have a SOAR platform. So that kind of makes the process a little bit faster. But in essence, yeah, there's always a time where you go back and you're like, Okay, I need to go back to the originality of what this is, and that requires you looking at the log. So it depends how deep you have to go, how deep you need to go. It depends on the case. And just like Matt said, sometimes it might just be a failed login, or it might be a failed login from, I don't know, another country that's like way off different time zone. And then you go back and take a look and you realize, oh, this has happened every Friday the past six months. So this person clearly has a pattern. So that leads you to go deeper and be like, okay, what other processes have happened at this time? Do I need to look deeper into the logs? Do I need to look at the end user's device? Why is it pinging from this country? So- It depends. But yes, I do always end up having to look at the logs more than once. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I like both of these examples quite a bit. The first math that you brought up, which is obviously just like a brute force attack on an RDP port, because that sounds like something both very basic and that a lot of folks understand. It's a script just trying to break through a password. And then Anne-Marie, as you were saying, like, oh, actually, we're looking at like where this attempted login is coming from and then does it have a pattern is it happening every day you know at a certain time from a different country and that already sounds a little like more advanced a little different and so i like both of these examples because they help me ask this next question which is have
2: attacks
1: become more advanced over the years oh absolutely
2: yeah Uh, i agree
1: (laughs) from a higher level they've had simple yes um
2: well
0: Not only has the landscape changed over the past 20 years and even more so over the past 10 years, past five, even the past three years, and for notable reasons, uh, the past three years, more people have been working from home, which means more computers are outside the walled fortresses that have been our internal networks. So more things have come directly to the endpoint, and the amount of need that initially got put in place as people work, started working remotely, the security hasn't kept pace or has had definite challenges trying to keep pace with a threat landscape as everyone moved to a working from remote. So now suddenly, as opposed to having you know giant firewalls and having you know a DMZ protecting most computers for people at work, now people are just sitting at home, with whatever that they happen to have at hand. Or, you know, a lot of companies have adopted a bring your own computer mentality so that people could remote work. But that has changed the landscape from, oh, we need to quietly and politely nibble our way through the fortress wall on the outside of this organization to the, oh, no, this computer is just right here on the internet. I mean, they barely even have a security router at this point, and they're just kind of hanging out there using whatever the company was able to get to you quickly or whatever you managed to have already loaded on there. Sometimes it's just what comes with the operating system. So yes, it is all changed, but the end goal has always been from, well, from attackers, it's only going to be one of two things, disruption or monetization.
2: I also think the ability to buy malware now makes the threat landscape a little bit Harder and different because you might think something like has been remediated, no one has it, and then once in a while you you just see that one customer that's been hit by ransomware that you haven't seen or any malware you haven't seen in like five years or six years.
0: Yeah, Amory brings up a great point. There's been a very large uptick in ransomware as a service. Um, literally, you can go on the dark web and literally you can have somebody custom generate a new piece of ransomware for you including technical support on how to get it out there, and all they want is a cut of the ransom. It's usually like 20%.
1: So it sounds like folks have to worry about not just that attackers have gotten savvier, but that savvy attacks have become more accessible to everyday criminals. Am I getting that right?
0: Absolutely. And if you take that to its logical extreme, the professional-grade attackers are now operating to the point where they don't have anything that would even look like a threat at all. That's more of a living off the land. Right now, the biggest push is to, if you're going to get inside and just get one credential, one username and password, then use the tools that are available on that particular endpoint that already exist, that are already either part of the operating system or part of the standard tooling for having an endpoint out there and use those that's analogous to a uh, conquering force coming and growing their own wheat to have food for the winter but the tooling that exists natively on any particular endpoint out there allows an awful lot of flexibility and utility and it's all inherent to the operating systems those tools are built there specifically for these things it's whether or not you know something that is an IT grade utility for pushing software inside a domain could be leveraged by a malicious actor. And the answer is yes, easily. And it is available on nearly every single Windows desktop or Macintosh desktop or a large majority of Linux desktops that are out there as well. They're readily available, they're easily used, and they look just like standard business, which is where the analysis comes in on our side, where we squint at the telemetry and look at it and go, okay. what account should it be using? What time should it be running? Should it be signed code? And a myriad of different factors that you look at to find out if those legitimate, normal, standard tools are being leveraged for other purposes.
1: How do you find something like that? Because it sounds so much more nuanced and detailed. Like you said, it's it's one account, and that one account is doing something that... Is permitted by an operating system. Like it's used, it's not downloading new tools. You know, the attacker behind it isn't going out and finding something and bringing it onto the system. They're just using what's available to them already. And so, what are the signs for that? What are the signs for that account being doing something that it shouldn't be doing?
0: It's an awful lot of things to take in at once. So, it is not just that that account is being used, it is whom does that account belong to? Can we get some information on what times that account should be functioning. What are the subset of tools that they're using? I mean, is it PowerShell in a Windows environment? Is it a cron job on a Mac or Linux environment? Should these be being run in the middle of the night? Is that standard operating procedure? Do we expect this to be happening on just 1Z, 2Z endpoints? Or do we expect this to be happening on all the endpoints at once? And if not, why not? Then you start asking behavioral questions. So, for example, it's a Windows environment and I'm seeing PSEXEC, which is a handy, handy tool made by Microsoft, signed by Microsoft for administering things across a network in a Microsoft environment. I'm seeing PSEXEC run. Well, is that supposed to happen sporadically during the day? This would be something that my IT people would be running. Do they do that during the weekends? Do they do that at night? When should I expect that? What accounts should I expect them to be using? And then you look at the command line for what it was doing. Did it then spawn some other process or did it just copy a file and set a registry key? So you look at the the tool that was being used, whom supposedly was using it, what it was doing on which endpoints at what time and to what effect. And then in a scenario where you're taking that back and doing it for a customer, like you're going out and threat hunting. like Is this expected? Is this standard operating procedure? Or is this outside of that? And is there anything else that we need to be going on? If the answer is, yes, that's totally fine. Frank does those every Thursday. Great. Frank does those every Thursday. What about this one that happened on Tuesday? Oh, well, Frank didn't do anything on Tuesday. Or what if, no, nobody should be using that at all. Okay, great. Or yeah, those are okay. Those things happen all the time, but some of these went out and opened a WebSocket to download something from the internet is that standard operating procedure? And do we have a copy of the thing that it downloaded? We know where it came from. Can we get a copy of it? We got a copy of it. Oh my god, this thing is horrible, or this thing is perfectly fine. But it's very much setting a threshold of this looks suspicious, or this is out of the normal operating procedures that we would expect. And then getting answers to those if you were doing a threat hunt, or in the event of, hey, we're just trying to protect the environment. Well, if you're seeing something that looks suspicious, you might as well just stop it right now. We'll ask questions about whether or not that's expected later. And that all depends on the requirements for the line of business or for the end user or anybody that has these particular needs that has other people going through and doing threat hunts for them. So the customer in and of themselves or the end user is going to have a, well, no, I didn't expect to click on something through a Facebook message and then have you know 63 different processes kick off on my computer. That's probably unlikely and unwanted. So please get rid of that.
1: For the work that both of you have done, what you both know about attacks and attackers, what do you think that businesses have not yet grasped about cybersecurity?
0: It depends at the level. I mean, if you're talking major enterprise, they have hopefully figured out that they need to be reading all the things because you never know where something is going to come from. So you need to be looking for it everywhere the attack surface for an enterprise is just simply much larger because you've got more things going on. You're an enterprise and you're worth more money than smaller people. So you have a larger attack surface and you're worth more. So from a criminal point of view, that's a good place to go. From smaller organizations, the things that people miss is you can buy a product. And like I said, you know it's a Ferrari, but you're not a race car driver. You need to have race car drivers to drive your Ferrari, especially if you want to win races. But it's hard because everyone is trying to do the best that they can for as little as they can possibly spend on it and finding the sweet spot in between those two things. So they'll look for a product and the product may be fantastic, but they can't afford the fantastic product. So they'll go with a product that doesn't cost nearly as much, but is harder to use because the expensive product is easy to use. So There's a budget, there's a efficacy of the product, and then there is the user portion of how easy is it to actually get this solution in place and make it effective for myself. And from a small and medium business perspective, it's that last one. It's the who's going to run it? How are they going to do it? And in the past, it's always been very difficult for people because if you aren't steeped in what a security event looks like, you wouldn't see one. You would have no idea that this particular log entry in your security logs has this number, and that's a remote desktop failed connection attempt. And unless you went through and actually knew what that was or read all of the words, which is, you know, three sub menus down, you wouldn't know that you were going there or that your product needed you to look in this other subsection of this log file in order to determine that something was going on. And it's, more effective for you to get somebody that knows what they're doing in order to do that for you. I know how to put the gases into the tanks for the welder, but that does not make me a welder. I can make a pool of molten metal, but that does not mean you should trust your life to me welding together the frame on a car. There's a professional that knows how to weld, and they're worth every penny that they get because that's a skill that's talent and that is something that is practiced. And if I don't want to die going around a corner in a car that I welded together myself, I should probably have somebody doing those welds for me. It's the same with security. If you don't know what you're doing, you're more than likely going to make a mistake, not because you were purposefully trying to give somebody the option, but you just didn't know that that was going to be something that you need to be cognizant of. and. I'm sitting here as you know the manager for uh, managed detection and response service. I, you should have people that are qualified looking at these things because that's what I do. So it's very self-serving, but <laughs> it is also some of the best advice you could possibly have, especially if you're concerned about endpoint security in any way, shape or form. Having somebody that knows what they're seeing and interpret those results, you're going to be way better off than having somebody that just doesn't know at all. And, you know, again, you can have a Ferrari, but if you don't know how to drive a clutch, you're probably not going to win any races.
1: And Marie, I wanted to get your thoughts on that as well.
2: No, oh, yeah, Matt's, Matt's absolutely right. In my career, I've seen a lot of customers have all these products, like they have an EDR, they have a vulnerability scanner, they have a SIM, and they just don't know what they're doing. And then you go in there and there's like a bunch of port scans, clearly someone's scanning their network that they don't know about. So it's really important to hire someone so you're not wasting money because you're legitimately throwing away money. And those same tools that you have in your environment, not configured right, could be used to compromise you. So it almost is like a double-edged sword. Because remember, hackers and attackers also know that they expect you to have these tools To a certain degree, they expect you to have all these things in your network and they will leverage them. So not to name drop, but like kind of like the Uber hack that just happened recently, the attacker, not that advanced, basically just used all the tools that they had in their environment once they got in and they got credentials. So always worth it hiring someone who knows what they're doing, who can look at it and interpret it for you and tell you what's going on. And in most cases, actually even make it look better because then you have dashboards and you have an actual workable solution because someone can come over and tell you, hey, if you just changed this or if you just blocked traffic from this port, you wouldn't have all this. That, that that would take away all this traffic and you'd have a smoother workflow. Or if you fix this vulnerability, you're going to close all these five things and you're not going to be compromising the simplest way ever. So it's worth it.
1: I think it's so interesting what you've both said here, because, you know, I've been to, I've gone to cybersecurity conferences in the past year that are now back in person. And you go to a place like RSA, you go to a place like Black Hat, and the exhibition floor is not to name one single company, but it's every single company kind of advertising with the idea that their product will fix your problem. And it sounds like A product that is unmanaged and is just kind of rolled out into an environment and no one knows how to use is never going to fix any problem. That actually what fixes problems are people. Uh, I'm just trying to see if I get that right.
0: Well, software stops software. People stop people. If you're in somebody's sites, that's a group of humans, usually that want to do or get something from you. They either want to destroy your business or they want to get your money. Usually it's the money because, you know, money. Everyone likes money. But the products in and of themselves are, I can't really think of a product that I think is doing a horrible job. I can think of many products that have had poor guidance in putting them in place. So for, uh, from all the, uh, what you just brought up about you know going to the conventions, everyone's got a product, yeah. everyone's got a yeah. solution that they want to sell you easily, but it's not just a matter of having the solution that is easily there and available. It's, it's going through and following through on the rest of the golf stroke. These clubs are the best. These balls are the best. But if you don't practice your swing, you're never going to get the ball where you want it to go. I've got an analogy for everything, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's the practice. It's the guidance. It is the taking the lessons that the technology has taught you. Like uh, people are going to come from here. We detected these things. Great. And then putting it together in a bigger picture of, okay, if it made it here to the endpoint, which was my last bastion of defense. What above that do I need to tighten up? What do I need to be looking at above that? So I could have seen this before it got all the way down to the endpoint. So every time I see a detection at an endpoint, I'm thinking of what can I tighten up above that? What can I possibly look at beyond that particular endpoint to look at? And that's where my brain likes to go. I come from a very enterprise experience of like, okay, every detection down here at the endpoint is indicative of a failure at every other security control I had above that. So you have to take those lessons and you have to put that back up. And that's where a human stops another human by thinking about what could I have put in place before that? What else should I be looking for? What else can I correlate this to? And a single product can't do that. A single suite of products can't do that. Somebody has to look at all of the things. And the problem for small to medium businesses is they don't have staff for that. And programs like an MDR service give And it doesn't matter from what vendor, but they give a smaller customer the ability and a set of eyes and a set of knowledge and a set of experience that they can then tap in order to help protect them. They can look at all those things and say, oh, look, this came in from your mail system, or this came in from your router from this nation that you don't have any business needing to be talking to. Why don't we just block that nation? why don't we block that whole entire geographical location? You can do that. Let's just block this service. You don't need to have remote desktop available on the Internet. No one's coming through that way. Or if somebody needs to come through that way, hey, that's probably a good time to start entertaining the concept of getting another piece of technology to allow that to happen securely, like a VPN, and not a VPN service, but an actual VPN, because there's a difference. And we're not going to go down that rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Good. we are talking a lot about people stopping people. And uh, I wanted to get into details here, um, stories, and we don't have to, you know, name anyone in it, but I would love to hear about, you know, considering both of your background and expertise uh, in this field, can both of you share stories about attacks that if you had to immediately think like my biggest victory or the the best success that I helped achieve that is some corporate speak there. I'm sorry about that. But um, stopping an attacker, you know what immediately comes to mind for the two of you?
2: So I once had this customer first time they came to us, they were just like, hey, we've had ransomware. Um, we just need a solution. We need some help, someone to guide us in the right direction, which is all great and good. But then once we helped them remediate that and we got rid of that we installed a sim and we're just like okay now the final part is always like you know you start monitoring making sure you're applying lessons learned and all of that so when we started monitoring we noticed that they had a lot of access points physically in the building that did not belong to them and we did have actually one user who always like logged in randomly at random hours they were east coast but for some reason we did see times like from australia or that side of the world where they just did not do business. So the more we kept digging, we noticed that, oh, there's this person who comes in and actually creates themselves an account. And they had a process that if an account is not approved or it has not been activated within the first three days, it gets auto-deleted. So we found a bunch of these auto deletions. And I think the attacker was initially trying to see how long they could get away with all of this before they were actually caught. So what ended up happening, they basically just kind of revamped their entire physical networking, and then they got rid of all old accounts and all of that. So we were able to stop something that was actually about to happen. And the prior ransomware was from the same group. It was basically the same person just persistently trying over and over and over again, because they had found like a perfect target. So yeah, that that was really an interesting time. And interesting couple of weeks.
1: Matt, what, um what comes to mind for you? Oh
0: man, why are all the stories about ransomware? But the, yeah, it's about ransomware. <laughs> I think it's because it's it hits the closest to home. This is a story about, it, it was a shipping company several years ago, pre-pandemic, and a less mature and less savvy attacker got in with a piece of ransomware and got into a piece of ransomware with one distribution location. Now, this was part of a network of distribution locations, but they made it into this one particular site, about 15 endpoints, all said and done. But it's a warehouse, so trucks running in and out of the whole thing. And the ransomware got deployed, and I was brought in to find out how that had made it there and what else to do about it. But The company that brought me in was just like, okay, this is our single site. Go out there, help try to find it down. We're trying to look for root cause. Found the endpoint where it started on. It's easy to find, but basically it's the first one that got encrypted and then everything else went out from there. We're then able to take a little bit of telemetry from the endpoints that got encrypted I mean, there wasn't full encryption on there, so the operating system still ran because you want to be able to deliver the ransom note and you want them to know where to pay you uh, as an attacker goes. So the operating system still, of course, worked, was able to dig into some of the endpoint products logs that in on there, noticed some suspicious activities that had come in from a certain external location, started to track that back, looked and saw what was downloaded, got a hash value for that particular file, which turned out to be the piece of ransomware, brand new one, not detected by anybody. And then we put that into their platform for their endpoint products across the board. Now, this is before we actually had gotten the ability to detect it real time, we were actually going through and matching a hash value. So this turned into a threat hunting moment where we got to look and find the piece of ransomware, a brand new piece of ransomware that they got from the dark web, software as a service, not going to go into which group it was, but we were able to find that on an additional 150 other endpoints at other locations that hadn't been triggered yet. So we took an attacker literally who got in a less mature attacker, got into where they could set off ransomware, did a smash and grab at the first location while not being mature enough in how to properly take everything down to the ground and burn it all down. They didn't finish the job. They only did a half job of it. So we were able to stop it at the rest of the organization simply because we found out how they were moving around and we found out what they were using to kick all of this off. And we created a series of policies, both for the endpoint product and for the operating systems as well, to not take anything that matched that hash value. So that's a very snowflake value. Nothing else is going to match it theoretically. Well, theoretically, there's not a chance that something can, but we're not going to go down that line of thought either. (laughs) Um, I, I stopped it in its tracks. And then literally the very next day, we had hundreds of reports of that thing attempting to run and then being blocked as the operating system and the products should be doing. And so that was a moment where we had a very small tragedy, but we were able to get in front of a very large tragedy and prevent it. And simply by going through, reading the log files, by looking at the tactics that they were using, reading and determining what they were trying to do and what they had historically done inside that organization and prevent it from happening. And then a, a litany of suggestions on, yeah, you should probably uh, block those particular international sites that you have no business being in your shipping company. You don't need to be talking to somebody halfway around the world. There's a whole bunch of operating system changes to make Microsoft LAPS, which is a local administrative security policy should be put in place and a myriad of other suggestions and recommendations that they enact because they weren't in the business of doing network security. They were in the business of trucking. They needed computers in order to be able to do that, but they didn't have the wherewithal and the depth of knowledge internally in order to identify and recognize when those things happen.
1: You came in at a moment where you came after a small tragedy, but you avoided something larger. I want to know from the both of you: Were there times when you were called in and you surveyed the scene and you said, "It's too late. We could have helped you days ago, you know, hours ago." But as of right now, there's very little we can do other than a long, like, labored recovery process. Uh, Yeah, just curious: Are are there moments like that that you can recall?
2: Yeah, there's there's been plenty of times customers have come to, at least for me, in my experience, and then it's just like, there's really not much we can do. We're just going to have to use your backups and your recovery. This I've I've seen it. One of them was actually one of my customers' manufacturing plant got hit with ransomware during the holidays, and this was in Europe. So they take longer holidays than here. And they did not realize until they got back, they just thought that the printers were offline because the team was not there, but they didn't realize that it was actually hit by ransomware um, until they came back. And it was just too late. They had to basically just use their backups, call in their printer people to get it all back up and running install new drivers, do all of this. And there's really nothing we could do, which they lost like about a month or two of production. In general, which really, really hurt them, but yeah, those situations do happen.
0: Matt, what about you? Yeah. Oh man, it's the same ransomware story that you see all the time. <laughs> yes. um, I, I have this exact story for a travel agency, for a law firm, for a dental office, for an international aid organization, and it is all the same story of yeah, we saw a few things happen and then and that was on a Tuesday and we tried to take care of it because we got some pretty smart people here and by close of business on Friday they were just reaching out to whomever could help. And in most of those instances, and I, I think all except for the dental office, I I think it was a restore from backup. And that is literally the moment where All they owned were computers that were capable of running an operating system, but all of the intellectual property that they had was now hidden behind several hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million dollars worth of ransom demands. Effectively, all they owned were a lease on a space and some furniture because all their intellectual property was gone. And Some of them were able to back up. Some of them had to start from scratch. And it's because they didn't know the signs. They didn't know to be cognizant of the signs, and they didn't even know that their solutions for preventing anything from happening to their backups were possibly in the line of fire as well. The worst ransomware stories are always, oh, and then they encrypted our backups because no one ever thinks that your backups are going to be encrypted because those are your backups. But those are the first things, if I were going to attack you, I'd get rid of the things local on your operating system that give you the ability, snapshots, volume, shadow copies. And then I'd go after your backups. And then I'd go after your security software. And then I'd go after your accounting software, because that's where all the money is. There's a lot of stories where you come in and there's just nothing to be done. And all all you can do is just like, okay, well, here's what you could have done better in the past. But that just kind of seems... That's never a nice conversation, especially with somebody who has just suffered a huge loss.
1: All of these stories have me thinking very similar to, I personally believe when it comes to like users, like per, like consumers, individuals, so just regular everyday folks, I personally think we ask them to do too much. I think we ask them to do too much, particularly different field here, but like online privacy, right? Like everyone has to manage their own like cookies now for like every single website. And like every single day, there's just something more that they have to do. And what I'm getting at here is that it also feels like we're at like this dental office, you know, and this law firm, and this international aid office and uh, these manufacturing plants, like they're not huge, enormous corporations that can fund a security team internally that can look at this all the time. And I just wanted to Ask both of you, like, do you think we're asking businesses of this size to do too much, like to manage their security on their own? I don't think we have much of a choice.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And 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 that sounds, I mean, uh, there's a self-serving part of it, like, you know, I have a thing that I want to sell you whatnot. but that uh, beyond <laughs> that, uh, we give them these operating systems and pick any operating system that you like from a theoretical standpoint that's like putting a Batmobile in everybody's driveway. Even the smallest little computer is still capable of very powerful things. But that is the nature of what we have. We literally have theoretical toolboxes that are being delivered to people's homes. We put them in your hands now. We put them in front of our children in order to entertain them for 30 minutes while you're trying to get some work done. Every single one of these devices is insanely powerful and has cameras and microphones and access to your banking account or an app that could get into it or any number of other things. So the landscape is that these powerful tools are everywhere and Yes, is it a lot to ask for you know standard people to do that? Yes, but it's also you know at one point in time it was a lot to uh, have people put on their seatbelts too. But we figured out how to do that. And at one point in time it was you know an awful lot to ask of people to get lead out of the gas. But we've done that. People are going to have to take their own security and their own privacy and be cognizant that that is an asset to somebody else, and then be prepared to investigate how to take care of themselves in the same way that you teach a child not to wander up between the cars in a parking lot, because only bad things will happen to that and we're seeing those bad things happen and people are becoming more and more cognizant of the problems, especially younger generations are coming up knowing, Oh yeah, I got to set my privacy settings. Right. Or everyone knows everything that I do. So we're getting better at it and we're getting more cognizant of the issues of the problems, but is it too much? Well, it isn't too much because we have these Batmobiles on everybody's desks or on their laps or in their pocket as their phone. So with all these tools out there and all the things that they can do, we have to do this. People have to become cognizant. People have to learn these things or this is going to continue to happen.
2: Yeah. I would say at this point, we've reached a place in our lives where security is in every. everyone plays a role in cybersecurity. It doesn't matter whether we're asking the company to do something or we're asking the individual user to do something. It's it's kind of, it's everybody's role. I don't want to say job because a job is like, I'm an analyst, so I do this daily. But it's it's almost like it's, it's in everyone's best interest to sometimes be cognizant of what is out there and what could happen. And to actually know, just to Matt's point, you do have a very powerful thing in your pocket, on your wrist, on your desk, wherever it is. Because computers do it all
1: I wanted to steer a bit and understand the job itself what makes for a good threat hunter which the two of you are
0: Oh colossal nerd oh no wait never mind
2: <laughs> I would say definitely experience just like we were talking earlier at the beginning of the session you know you you kind of get a feel of what's normal and what looks odd so it's like why is this user who is not even an IT allowing scripts to be executed from their device? Were they installing something? Is this normal? And if they're installing something, that's totally fine. But sometimes it's like, okay, you were installing mute me from Google Chrome. That should not execute from your PowerShell or something of the sort. So it's just being able to have that experience and that prior knowledge of where you've seen something before, you know what it's supposed to do, you know what the computer processes are, you know what the alert codes are, Obviously you will never know everything. It comes a time and every single day you learn something new, you find something new, which is just part of a threat hunt. I would also say patience and curiosity. A lot of it is just being patient and reading a log file is. You can't just scheme through it because I mean you can to a certain point once you once you get to that point where you're like really, really good. I haven't gotten there. Maybe Matt has.
0: Oh, the calibrated squint. Yeah. Well <laughs> we'll get there.
2: Yeah. So it's it's a lot of patience, a lot of curiosity, a lot of um, you know, poking it with a stick. And then also having access to great great tools because most of you're working on a computer, it's all software, it's all zeros and ones. Um, so having an EDR tool, being able to Use your open source tools out there, knowing what they do, how to navigate them. Because I could pop up Wireshark right now and we'll see traffic, but what does that mean? You know, it's being able to interpret all those things and put them together. I think that's what makes a good threat hunter. It really comes down to experience and having enough patience and curiosity. And then also your technical acumen that you learn as you go and as things come up all the classes we take all the certifications that are out there they all teach you stuff but it's 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 a lot different in the real world because it's not as dry as it would seem in the class so i would say the top one is experience followed by tools and all those other great skills that come with time
0: yeah from my perspective i'd probably say curiosity and then a goal. I mean, everything that I know about computers is because at one point in time, a computer was slapped in front of me and they're like, okay, you can play this cool game if you can figure out how to play that cool game. And then I had to learn an awful lot about computers from way back in the day. And I won't tell you how far back, but too far. All the rest of it comes from, this is how it's supposed to work. And then why is it not working that way? So identification of things that... Are outliers from what you would standardly see. Part of threat hunting is finding the things that you know look like normal things, but what are the you know of those normal-looking things? What are they doing that are outside the realm? So the outliers from normal things that are low percentage caused, um, as opposed to ninety-nine percentage caused, and and you look at the outliers on those. So pattern recognition, really being good at that. Brought up the calibrated squint when Anne Marie was talking, but you do reach a moment where you can start looking at a log file or the output from any type of system displayed in a text format. And you can just power scrub your way through it, you know, going, you know, hundreds of lines a minute. And you can see what normal looks like real fast. You'll be greeted with normal very well. But the calibrated squint, you can kind of back off a little bit. And then you're just looking for lines that don't look like and match the patterns of normal. Those are stereotypically, the ones that are going to just, well, reach out and grab your eye. And if they reach out and grab your eye, there's usually a reason that they reached out and grab your eye. Or you have to have then apply the curiosity on how things actually work and then read the dumb thing and then go, okay, well, that actually is normal behavior. It's just not in the normal cadence, Da da da, da, da. but pattern recognition coupled with the curiosity and then come with experience. So it's not difficult or Herculean to become good at any one of these things, but you generally have to go through and read about a good hundred or two attacks or a hundred or so threats to be able to get the terminology on how everything works. So. Software company puts out notification that there's a zero day for their product. You need to have the experience and the pattern recognition, as well as the underlying curiosity on how things work, to realize that, oh, based on the words that they said in all of this, you have to meet this criteria. Oh, well, this criteria, I mean, I know you can do these horrible things once you've found this vulnerability, but getting to this vulnerability winds up that you need to be in front of the keyboard itself. Well, Okay, now I need to go through and what do I, what can I do to prevent keyboard usage? Oh, that means that person's going to be inside my building. They could attack me with squirt guns and magnets and my computers would go down just as easily. It's the curiosity, it's the pattern matching, and then it's the, you know, the experience of going through and getting all of this and putting it all together, and that takes time and it takes practice. It's a weird bizarre dance that all of those things have to work together and then put it all together and then be able to do that in action into something useful for the people that you're doing it for. It takes an awful lot of work. There's a reason why there's negative unemployment in the security space right now. We need more people that can do this because we have more computers everywhere. Most people have three or four within like a six foot radius of them at most times, especially in their houses, which is where they keep all their cool stuff, which is the things that we ought to be protecting.
1: We need more people doing this. So yeah. I wanted to round out here with... Just what do you like about what you do?
2: We get to see new stuff every day. And it's always a different day. Every day is a different day. Every day is like you don't know what you're going to expect. Some weeks we have weeks where things go crazy and then you realize, oh, okay, so we had this whole huge incident because one character was off in the code. And it's like so. Now you've just learned something new that you know you have to have. Um, sometimes for some websites, these special characters that are necessary. Sometimes it ignores different characters and stuff like that. So I'd say that's one of the biggest things that I like about what I do. And then it's just again the curiosity. It most of it piques my curiosity because you just kind of go down a rabbit hole. And you're usually when like when you when you're doing a threat hunt, there is a goal. But sometimes it's just like you have a pile of stuff and it's just like okay sort this spaghetti and make it useful make it readable make it a story that a user can look at and be like okay what is the lesson we've learned here or is this set up right or again sometimes it's just nothing and you're just like oh that's good so now i know if i configure this machine like this nothing's ever going to go wrong or for now i can just sit back and rest and i can replicate this for other customers who've had this problem or you know look more into it so that's that's like what it is it's mostly like the Seeing new things and different things every day and then all the challenges that you face because sometimes you literally just scratch your head and you're just like, why does this exist or why do I do this for a living? And then you finally, the light bulb, go, the light bulb goes up <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm looking in the wrong place. 90% of the time you're looking at the wrong thing in the wrong place. But it's just, it's always changing. And then since joining bites, it's just been working with small businesses. I mean, someone's got to look out for them. And I'm a small business champion. I try as much as I can. To buy from them, so that's that's it's really going to be interesting to see what that looks like, and from a threat hunting side, and from like that type of attack surface.
1: Matt, what about you?
0: What do I like about what I do? Oh, man, always learning. There's always something new. I I have been doing this job for decades, and I'm still learning, and it's great. And another factor is, you know, part of it uh, uh, ego stroking. I I feel good about doing these things. I love to help other people. It makes me feel like I'm a good human being when I can take the things that I have a natural propensity to stare at and be able to turn that around into something that is useful to provide back. Like I, I know I'm a colossal nerd. I know that I have dug into, <laughs> I have had more time digging into why Bluetooth is as horrible as Bluetooth is simply because I was <laughs> interested in Bluetooth than most people care about. You know, uh, Yeah. But I can then take that and go, oh, put the attack surface on here, and then leverage that into something that actually will help other people. Simply because I can read logs really well, I can then go through and say like, oh, well, we can get in front of that by doing X, Y, and Z, and that'll keep everybody safer. It'll make the world a better place by stopping people from doing this horrifying thing with Bluetooth, or this horrifying thing with a piece of software, or this horrifying thing. And Ah, uh, Emory says, small to medium businesses. I think of it more as my family members because my siblings all have small to medium-sized businesses. So when I think of what I do today, what I'm trying to solve for right now is for my younger brother. It's for my older brother. I'm trying to help them to continue to do the things that they're doing so that they don't have to worry about this stuff. Right now, the things that I'm putting in place and the things that I'm working on will directly help them or indirectly help them by helping other people to keep them from you know, being impacted by a threat or an actor or anything like that. So I like what I'm doing because ego, learning, and I get to provide something that I know directly who the consumers of what I do are.
1: All good stuff. I can't believe I led with ego. <laughs> <laughs> Annemarie, Matt, thank you again so much for coming on today's show. Oh, not a problem.
2: Yeah, no problem. Thank you for hosting.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.